But I have here uh, Camille Foster, which I, I use as your affiliation in the Fifth Column podcast, but you do, you do a lot more than just that. Um, and hopefully we're going to talk about that a little bit here. Um, you, you've, um, you've published, well, you've published about a lot of stuff. What, one big thing you've been involved with recently is the debate around critical race theory. Um, as I think people who, who follow this, this show probably know, I actually interviewed Christopher Rufo, who I think is on the other side of the issue from you. Um, I, I, by the way, take, take the role of the soccer, uh, uh, what, what do you call, uh, um, not umpire, referee in, the, in, in this debate. So I'm not going to take a side on it. The other thing <laughs> you've also been very active in, and also a very hot topic, is uh, this business of why it's so damn dangerous <laughs> dog walking in New York City. There's like this risk of just ending up as like the one Twitter <laughs> villain of the day for some reason. And you've actually done real reporting there and you actually did a podcast with the, the famous woman in the, uh, the Central Park situation. And then also just, I think your personal politics, which you're very open about, are libertarian, which in this day and age is, is just incredible that you say they stay faithful to those beliefs. So if, you know, if we manage, if we have, if we have time left over after like the two biggest hot topics <laughs> in the zeitgeist right now, then maybe we can get to that. But maybe, maybe we can start, I don't know, you want to start on the CRT thing, Camille? Sure, sure. We can talk about that for a little bit. Although I think your characterization was me being on the other side of this, um, that as opposed to sort of Rufo. And uh, I don't know that there are just two sides. I think it's a little more complicated than that, but we can talk about it. Well, I think, right. I mean, that's, well, I mean, that, that's the other side of a different debate, which is, is there a political center anymore? And I think in, in that context, Rufo would be, would, at least from what he said in my interview, uh, which is on thepollrequest.com, just to do a little plug, he would definitely think that, in fact, no, we are in a bipartisan war. It's always been the case. There is no center. And I think you think otherwise. But let's maybe leave that for, for the end of this. Let's just get into the, into the CRT side of things, because you were a co-author, along with a bunch of other distinguished people, um, with, uh, you know, in a sort of position statement about it. Do you, do you want to maybe describe that briefly? Um, sure. Yeah. And, and I think in order to talk about it in a meaningful way, we probably have to back up to, to last summer, by which I mean the summer of 2020, uh, the summer of love, the summer of the, the beginnings of the quote unquote racial reckoning, uh, which I have come to <laughs> come to refer to as the racial retrogression. Uh, this this period where people seem to have discovered that they can and in some respects believe that they should talk about everything with respect to race and identity that the most important thing um, about themselves perhaps is their racial identity. The most important thing about the country is the various ways in which right. you know, racial groups are uh, imagined to be different from one another and are treated differently. Um, and as a result, then we need to recalibrate everything. Um, and the repercussions of that have made waves in, in every imaginable area of our lives in many respects, certainly with respect to our politics and workplaces in some instances. Um, and it is no mystery um, and should be no surprise like why it kind of made its way to schools. Um, and the way that's played out in schools is in some cases we've seen some pretty like, obscene and like ridiculous stories about teachers who are, you know, pushing a, a rather deliberate like, agenda in classrooms um, and are doing what I, I would refer to as racial essentialism, uh, practicing like racial essentialism in classroom, splitting kids up into racial affinity groups, um, teaching lessons that are very specifically kind of politically aligned um, with like the racial retrogression and uh, kind of pursuing these, these themes, which I think Rufo has referred to 
as critical race theory broadly. And there's a sense in which um, Chris and I have sort of been allies historically around a lot of this stuff in the sense that we're both opposed to race essentialism. And we both think that the, the appropriate valence, certainly for the state, but in general, is to treat people as individuals, to give every, my, my own sort of framing for that is to give every person, to grant every person the dignity of their individuality. Um, but in recent months, um, the, the, there's become a bit of a tension between like myself and a number of conservatives um, and, and Chris amongst them uh, as they've started to push back against a lot of these trends by promoting uh, bans on critical race theory uh, in, in different contexts, specifically in schools, but it's not limited to that. We've seen uh, uh, Marco Rubio recently introduced some legislation that's supposed to make it easier for people to sue uh, companies that they are stakeholders in if, in fact, that company is, say, too woke um, or is, is sort of has some manifestation of critical race theory. And the, the classical liberal in me um, is is concerned about that. And as such, I helped co-author an editorial that ran in the New York Times um, that made an argument not against uh, critical race theory um, or even so much just against critical race theory bans. The, the piece itself really set out to try to establish like a vision for what public education could um, and perhaps ought to be in a, a free society that values kind of individual liberty and freedom of thought. And in a society like that, the question becomes, you know, what is the appropriate way to deal with um, a, a political philosophical schism that really does exist in America that is present in various places and aspects of our lives? Um, what should schools do? Are schools indoctrination camps? Um, my answer to that is no. Um, or should schools be teaching you approved curriculum? And my answer to that is probably no as well in some respects. I think that the opportunity, um, if we're if we're willing, willing to like try and live up to the challenge, is to have academies, K through 12, these public institutions, be places where kids are learning to think critically about important issues, where they develop the skills to be able to, by the time they've they've finished, um, to be able to navigate the various things that we disagree about, um, which means that, you know, trying to trying to make certain ideas off limits um, and certain discussions off limits in those settings um, is probably not the way that we want to navigate um, the the challenges that we face with respect to, say, even like a growing cultural proclivity amongst a lot of Americans to think about kind of race first um, and to think about things in terms of equity as opposed to um, say equality, um, and a lot of those distinctions may need to be drawn out, but that's that's where I'd start. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it, I can see the argument, right? But on the other hand, I mean, one of the motifs that I see in, in in just American political life for the past two centuries, right, is that the American political system is is quasi religious, almost, right? We have the sacred document, which is the definition of the nation, and nothing else. We have this sort of rabbinical court that determines what it means. And every serious political disagreement takes on takes on the sort of color of a of a religious schism, 
right? In the sense that it's it's a fundamental disagreement about what that what that constitution means, right? Or or what 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 the what does it mean to be an American? And in that conflict, one and the other side always tries to sort of co-opt some instrument of the federal government to sort of impose its interpretation of the of the sacred document. And then, of course, people use federalism and the state government to sort of defend against it, right? So, like in my writing, I cited the example of, you know, in California, the whole sanctuary city policy, which is basically cities saying we're not going to follow federal immigration law. Or you have Texas effectively banning abortion, right? Um, and so you can see many examples of this in which people are battling it out. I, I, I guess I'm wondering... You're, you're sort of pointing to sort of a centrist age in which there's a marketplace of ideas. But I think some some would question whether the school is actually a marketplace of ideas because it's it's not. There are some things that we wouldn't explicitly teach. And then in terms of like yeah. the I think what you're objecting to, for example, Mark Rubio's thing, which, of course, is never going to pass the House or whatever. But just to take it out on its merits, what is what's wrong in some sense with using federal policy to basically enact one particular view of what it means to be American and what institutions should do. Is, is it that strange? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there's, there's a fundamental conversation in this country and, and has been for a very long time with respect to what government ought to do. Um, what is the appropriate role for government and the libertarian sensibility to kind of speak um, broadly right. about my politics in order to, to try to eliminate this issue more is generally, dispositionally, to be skeptical of concentrations of power, to try and devolve as much stuff to kind of the, the, the level of government at a minimum that's closest to the individuals who are impacted by these policies. But even more than that, to let people kind of freely associate and make decisions that they deem sort of best for themselves. And oh, I just got a something is wrong banner. Hopefully we're still together. No, I, I, I talked to the devs. Apparently, the servers are running slow for some reason. I also got some errors. I would just ignore it and okay. just power through it. Cool. Um, so, I mean, I think that's that's the first thing. And, you know, in the context of, like, classroom curriculums and what what government ought to do with respect to public schools, there there are obviously decisions that have to be made with respect to curriculum, with respect to what's taught and what isn't taught. And I think a number of... of um, false arguments and misrepresentations of the perspective that was expressed in that um, editorial um, and in general about like my views on this stuff um, are are circulating. Um, for, for one thing, I've never said that these bans in general are unconstitutional or, or can't be passed because they sort of breach uh, free speech. Um, in a in a sort of literal, literal legal sense, I mean, the, the reality is that there is a great deal, a, a broad swath of authority that officials have to implement changes by law um, and to kind of dictate what's taught inside of schools. So that is just necessarily true um, with respect to how schools operate. But in terms of the principle that we are using when we're thinking about curriculums, the question of whether or not certain things, like a whole broad universe of things, ought to be off limits is another thing. And I think that that part of the issue here is that it is frequently the case that people refer to critical race theory as though it is a very compact, easily identifiable and discernible set of ideas and principles and practices, that there's you know a canon of books, perhaps, uh, that, that we know that once we get rid of those things and prevent people from doing that, then CRT no longer makes its way into the classrooms. Um, and that's just not an accurate representation of what's happening in the culture right now. And it's not an accurate representation of the schism between people who kind of have 
what I'd say are more traditional and quite frankly, like mainstream convictions about the dignity of the individual, um, about the importance and centrality of race and about the importance of prioritizing equality um, over equity. And, you know, to acknowledge that that the, the issue is actually really complicated and navigating it and figuring out how to talk about these things is really complicated. And quite frankly, preventing people from talking about these things is really complicated requires us to acknowledge that the bans that are being implemented to try and stop CRT broadly or even the worst manifestations of CRT are oftentimes written in ways that end up like creating an environment in classrooms that is more censorious, um, that in a number of instances, the laws have gone sort of well beyond kind of the, the notion of them being these really clean, cleanly developed and um, prescribed pieces of le- legislation into pl- things that in some instances, the, the, the proposed legislation would restrict the things that students are allowed to talk about in school. And I just think that there there are a great many problems with that um, as compared to, say, for example, the standards that exist in federal law already um, and in many state laws that mirror it, um, preventing, say, prohibiting discrimination in classrooms and mandating equal protection. Um, and in other instances, and I'll, I'll only go a little further, you know, there's obviously a huge difference between a kindergartner and a 12th grader. And a lo- these bans are not specific to age groups. Um, They're putting restrictions across the board. And in many instances, we're talking about kids who can't really do civics class in a normal way, who can't be exposed to, say, the writings of Martin Luther King or James Baldwin in some contexts, because they traffic in um, ideas that are anathema to to some people, um, or some of their ideas are, you know, a little more controversial. Um, I'm someone who has a great deal of admiration for Martin Luther King and James Baldwin. I also have some severe disagreements with them on specific things. Um, and the question becomes, you know, how do you, how do you actually navigate these complicated issues and acknowledge the differences that exist between people um, while, you know, teaching kids to think critically? I've never made the argument that schools are a marketplace of ideas. I think that's a, it's a, a trope that is tossed around a lot by people who are trying to defend CRT bans. Um, I'm not I'm not at all unaware of the fact that public schools are a monopoly um, run by the government. Um, my my particular perspective is that we should be looking for ways to make that less the case, i.e., making public education a more dynamic and competitive space where parents have a greater deal of control from a sort of household to household level by giving them, I don't know, policies like school choice, for example, um, and recognizing that, you know, the there is no perfect outcome here, um, but it certainly isn't necessarily perfect to imagine that, you know, the world is simpler than it is and that you can simply ban bad things out of existence and by so doing, you know, save all of the children from you know the dreaded specter of of critical race theory. Um, I mean, I think the reality is that we've already seen that a lot of these policies have produced some pretty um, pretty crummy results with respect to these national controversies, like local local drama turning into national controversy, where a school teacher gets fired for doing something as dangerous as like inviting students in a high school to read Tani Coates's work. Like, I think that's a problem. 
and one has to acknowledge that you know hysteria is is sort of dominating yeah. our our discourse when that is is the way that we are approaching these issues. Well, I you know I think we live in a hysterical age. I mean, just to address one of the things you, you raised, right? That I mean, you're right that in some sense CRT is referred to as this almost as if it was some sort of cohesive catechism, as if it comes from some church, which of course it isn't, and I think that would be a mischaracterization. I mean that you know that said, I, I mean. <laughs> Communism doesn't, I mean, doesn't exactly have a cohesive catechism either, right? And Marxist thought manifests itself in various ways. So right. I, don't, I don't know that the fact... Also not prohibited, also not prohibited in K through 12. I, I learned about that in school. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of things aren't explicitly prohibited, but if you were to consider putting them on the curriculum, you'd get, you'd get shattered out of any any parent meeting. But so, so I mean, the, sure. the fact that it's not cohesive, I mean, okay. I, I mean, I, I certainly hear you on the business of like, you know, decentralized decision making and, and school boards. I mean, it is interesting that it's, it seems as if, and again, it's, it's always in the fog of Twitter war. It's hard to tell how much is this true, but it seems that the Biden administration, um, you know, is making public statements about the threat to teachers, for example, of some of these protesters. Um, and so, mm-hmm. again, if you're in the sort of anti-CRT crowd, it seems as if he's sticking the FBI on parrots who are, in some sense, expressing their very decentralized democratic view that right. they don't want their kids uh, to learn this. And, and just to address the last thing, the marketplace of ideas, I mean, you know, let's just get real, right? Like public schools, I mean, one aspect is education, reading, writing, arithmetic, but but obviously there's a civic duty there of sort of forming citizens, right? And I think in the U.S., like either that comes off as schmaltzy or Norman Rockwell-esque. Mm-hmm. I think in, in France, just to cite another example of like a comparable Western democracy, it's much more explicit. And like it's the thought is that school is supposed to form, you know, Republican citizens. And, that, and, that, and that's that's well understood. Right. People just accept it is not going to be a marketplace of ideas. There is a certain I, you wouldn't call it therapeutic, but almost formative aspect to this. And so I, I think that's why these that's why this is so heated. Right. It's, it's not merely some historiographical debate about 1619 project versus whatever, it really is sort of what values we actually want to inculcate in our children and pass along. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And again, I, I would, I would commend to anyone who hasn't read it to go back and, and like read the actual editorial that got published in the New York times. The, the reality is I'm, I'm was a bit astonished to discover that it created the waves that it did because I mean, I think it, I think is completely in line with what you just outlined there. Like, what is the purpose of a liberal education? This is the question at the heart of the bitter debate. Schools, particularly at the kindergarten K through 12 level, are responsible for helping to turn students into well-informed and discerning citizens. At their best, our nation's schools equip young minds to grapple with complexity and navigate our differences. At their worst, they resemble indoctrination factories. Like a school that is is telling students definitively that you know Nicole Hannah Jones has the the definitive and most important and only salient rendering of American history is a school that is doing it wrong, right? Like I'm I'm opposed to that, and in much the same respect, a school that decides that you can't discuss Nicole Hannah Jones' rather important project it, it, it is ridiculous to present to pretend this thing doesn't exist. Um, is also doing it wrong. Like, the reality is that this is a part of our polity at this point. The president of the United States talks in terms of racial equity. It, it would be, I think, a, a travesty and a disservice to students not to be able to, at some in some capacity, explore those ideas. And getting the balance right in terms of you know how to go about doing that 
is a challenge that parents have been navigating with a universe of complicated issues since time and time in memoria, or at least since the beginning of public education. Like my, my parents had to make decisions about whether or not I'd be able to cut up a frog or whether or not I'd be able to take sexual education courses with the teacher and the rest of the class. And they were engaged in that process. And as I said, I just I think that there are people who are are making sweeping claims and and bold promises about how easy it is to navigate these complicated issues. And I'm in the unenviable position of saying there is no easy out here. You you actually have to do the hard work of getting involved and staying involved and helping to ensure that the school that you're all going to, um, that we're all sending our kids to, are schools that live up to those to those values that are helping kids navigate complexity and and navigate difficult issues. Um, again, not indoctrination facilities that rules out the the worst version of the critical race theory um, drama that Chris Rufo fears, um, and I think it also rules out. Um, a, a paradise where you know the public schools are these these cathedrals of purity and sanct and, and they're sanctified and there's never any sort of contention about what difficult issues can and can't be discussed there. Okay, yeah, I mean, I I think part of what's also motivating again, I, and I got I, I get this not that I'm that tuned into the issue, but I got this from the the Rufo interview, right? Mm-hmm. Is that e- even if you advocate, okay, look, we're not gonna we're not going to engage in the cold civil war of using the instruments of federal policy to sort of impose our view. We're going to leave this to the school districts. Um, I I think part of what's driving, again, so much of the political strife that we see today and sort of partisanship is the fact that I think people feel that they're losing control from even their local government. Right. And so to hear Rufo describe it, and you know, it, it definitely feels true, at least from my experience kind of living inside San Francisco, that the larger coastal blue cities, you know, aren't, aren't really responsive anymore. There's, I hate to use the term deep state because it sounds so QAnon-ish, but that, you know, there's a series of foundations, <laughs> NGOs, in, you know, interest groups, et cetera, that sort of collude or collaborate, however you want to look at it, with local government and create a certain, a certain policy platform. And that, that often is a little bit aloof or distanced from popular will. I can cite the example, and this I am familiar with because I used to dial into these calls mm-hmm. before it so depressed me. I stopped doing it. But the SF uh, Unified School District over the cast, course of the past two years, for those who aren't familiar, it's been a complete circus. And they they handled COVID you know, horribly. They basically did nothing except close it and start you know renaming schools and canceling Abraham Lincoln, all the rest of it. And then they basically nuked Lowell, which is the last sort of elite public school. Right, right. The Allie Collins, who I believe was chair head of the school board, you know, was basically kind of booted. She sued the school district, which, by the way, is short of cash and is getting bailed out by the. the it, it is a complete anarchic, ridiculous ideological zoom. People have gotten so fed up that they're, you know, in the process of recalling them. And so, in that specific case, I can definitely see how. Something has just become ideologically unhinged and the local machine, even though in theory it's the last and most closest and most distributed mm-hmm. layer of American government, is not really being responsive. I mean, you just go to these calls and it's just parent or even student after student saying, what the hell, like save Lowell, all the rest of it. And clearly right. there is just some malign ideology yeah. that somehow the people had to sort of rally to defeat. So I think that's kind of the fear that I, that I think popular will, even at the local level, isn't actually being expressed. Right. Yeah, listen, you, you will not. I don't disagree with that. Um, my, my thing is, what are we doing to inject more choice into the system? Because at the end of the day, I don't think 
there's there's a couple of challenges with these bans. One, you can't pass it in San Francisco. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to pass it nationally. Right. Never is going to happen. It won't happen in Washington state where, you know, Chris lives. Um, <laughs> in fact, where Chris lives, Chris is pursuing precisely the policies or strategies that we prescribe inside of that notorious New York Times editorial for trying to combat this stuff, leveraging the courts and engaging with your schools directly and trying to develop better curriculums that more more accurately represent the broad swath of perspectives on these issues and are more geared towards building kids that can think critically around these, building adults um, through the schools that can think critically about these challenging issues. But even more than that, the reality is that these, there, was, there was no panacea in public education you know, before all of this drama began. That in most cities in America, failure, like decades-long failure, systematic failure, and I don't mean racially systematic, I just mean broadly systematic, um, has plagued public education for a very long time. And giving, injecting choice into these schools, ensuring that that teachers and um, and administrators aren't able to 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 play at social justice when they ought to be undergoing major reforms and when accountability ought to be the the, the rule of the day um, and choice ought to be an option for every single parent in America. Um, I think that 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 has to be the priority. And it is very telling. And I've, I've used this anecdote multiple times, but I, I do it because it's, it's potent and true um, and not an exaggeration. When the state of Texas, the reddest state in the union by some measures, um, is is passing an abortion ban that can't stand. And they're passing a critical race theory ban that is not not necessarily addressing any material concern that exists in Texas. And they don't have school choice that tells you where their priorities are. And I'd say that those priorities are are completely out of phase with what is actually consequential and what actually matters. Um, and and I think we should probably talk about this like FBI, this FBI thing um, with critical race theory and the Biden administration broadly. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general, um, issues this memorandum. And the memorandum is 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 something that like it makes my my libertarian spider senses tingle tingle. Like anytime I see agents of the state getting uh, developing a sort of closer proximity to political culture wars like that bothers me. And in this particular case, there's no doubt that there is an exaggerated over concern about the sort of the tenseness of the debates that are taking place at school in school boards across the country. Um, this was all inspired in some respects, it seems, by a ridiculous overwrought um, letter from an organization suggesting that, you know, the teachers are, are sort of being threatened in a way that means that we need to use something like the Patriot Act to protect them and to go after people that are making threats um, at teachers. And there's a dangerous conflation taking place there. It's a hysterical overreaction. This is the sort of thing that, that the federal government shouldn't be doing. And the FBI, you know, even if the letter says, you know, it, it sort of gives due deference to, to the importance of open debate while saying that they're going to kind of mobilize and at least start to engage with local officials to try and protect teachers and dissuade that and discourage violence. I'm, I'm glad they're discouraging violence. It's not obvious to me that there is a grave threat here. But what's important is to recognize what happens when you meet ridiculous politicized hysteria with more ridiculous politicized hysteria. When the title of your article attacking this stupid policy 
is Biden criminalizes CRT dissent, you are engaging in falsehoods, errors, and exaggerations. And it compounds the problem and makes our culture wars deeper and stupider. It doesn't actually elevate the discussion. And I don't think that we win at that game. I think we we end up in a downward spiral of absurdities and increasingly kind of competing hysteria. And I just don't I don't know who wins that game. I will never play that game. I am the guy who tells you that, you know, I think criminal justice reform is important. Too many people die at the hands of police, but the number of, you know, unarmed people shot by police is generally not that huge. And that's important. And we shouldn't be hysterical. And in much the same way, race essentialism is terrible. I hate it uh, with with a, a deep and abiding passion. And at the same time, I'm not going to pretend that every school in America is contaminated by these these teachers who are trying to indoctrinate all of their students with Ibram Kendi's work. Both of those things are absurd, hysterical exaggerations. And I will say so every time confidently because it's true. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, this is perhaps best encapsulated in a, in a tweet Rufo had, which was, um, I'm paraphrasing from memory, I'm not looking at it, but we went from uh, CRT doesn't exist to opposing it as domestic terrorism in 90 days, right? Yeah, which, which is absurd. Which is absurd. And that's the game that he plays at. And I get it. It makes sense. Well, but hold on, hold on. But you, but you express the same qualms about the FBI taking or the federal government taking an interest in those who oppose it, right? Like, yeah, I think it's I think it's bad. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I can say it's bad without saying the title of like the article Rufo wrote was Biden criminalizes CRT dissent. That is a lie. It's an exaggeration. It isn't true. Why write yeah, it? Yeah. I well, know you know, there's you this do it because you're doing it for effect. But when the effect is creating a deeper and deeper hysteria to the point where people who who are opposed to these things who might otherwise be my allies are literally promulgating conspiracy theories. Like, that's a problem. That's not that's not progress. And it may be the sort of thing that allows you to wield some sort of political power and influence. But at what cost? Yeah, I mean, there's this there's this famous essay by uh, Richard Hofstadter in the 50s or in the 60s, maybe called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, right? In which mm-hmm. he highlights exactly what you're describing, which, again, just to put a little perspective, is is not new on the on the American political landscape. No, <laughs> it's not new not, at all. Not at all. We, we've endured we've endured years of that during the Trump administration. I I spent most of the Trump administration telling people, and even the 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 months when it seemed like a real possibility after he got the nomination, telling people over and over again, it's not as bad as you suspect, but it may be worse than you imagine. Which is to say that Donald Trump was not the personification of evil, the second coming of Adolf Hitler, the the MAGA movement was not, you know, this dark cloud of fascism that was sweeping across America. But there's a sense in which he he was, I think, uh, a, a particularly potent distillation of a lot of the things that are wrong um, with American right. politics in some very like sort of general senses. There are sense there's a sense in which the things that I least liked about Donald Trump are kind of the ways in which like other politicians are conventionally awful and are generally overlooked. He didn't have the gift of being able to traffic in euphemism to obscure some of the rather stupid and ugly policies that many presidents have been able to, to sort of advocate for and pass and champion um, because he just he didn't have that skill set or at least he employed a different strategy. Um, and I think being able to yeah. recognize when that is the case, when the prevailing problem is, you know, our, our political culture that's dominated by hysterical conspiracy 
thinking where you recognize that QAnon is a problem and so is the Russian collusion hysteria that dominated the minds of progressives and most of the mainstream media for the four years of the Trump administration in some respects still does, which is kind of scary. Like then you start to recognize where we, we ought to be trying to make progress. And I do think that there is a meaningful portion of American society that isn't interested in the ridiculous, like partisan conspiratorial mudslinging that isn't interested right. in the, the apocalyptic politics that is dominating so many people's attention these days. I think we can do better than that. Okay. So before we go down fully the Trump rabbit hole, um, which <laughs> I'd probably rather not in the show, just because yeah, we, can, we can avoid it. Yes. Yeah. But speaking of personifications of evil, cause you know, again, we don't believe in God much these days, but the devil still walks the earth apparently. <laughs> And um, <laughs> speaking of the devil walking the earth, one of the other meta themes that you have just reached out, like I'm a, I'm a total wimp actually. Like I know that I'm in theory, I'm supposed to be like a professional narcissist, but I actually dislike these sort of hot button issues. But the one that you, that I wouldn't, wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole, but you, however, dealt with that on was this whole business of that, you know, again, the, the mortal risk apparently of dog walking or interacting with dog walkers in New York city starting with the Amy Cooper story that I think we all know about like over a year ago. And then a more recent situation mm. that I think you were also involved with. Um, I, I think in fact you, you even interviewed um, Amy Cooper herself. And so I'm, I'm curious what your, I don't know if you want to summarize mm-hmm. what you've done there and maybe point listeners to, to further reading. Cause I know you've, you've published some stuff there, or if you just want to summarize at a high level, what your conclusions are, or, or, or even why you got, why, even why you got involved with such a, such an issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to try and unpack the whole of those stories. I mean, certainly everyone remembers the Central Park Karen drama that played out around the same time. Uh, in fact, on the same day, George Floyd died. Um, and for a little while there, it was actually the bigger story, the bird watcher and the, the dog walker. Um, and about two weeks ago now, something kind of similar happened in, in um, a park in New York. And in both cases, um, I think what ended up happening was this kind of systematic um, in curiosity on the part of the mainstream media and, quite frankly, on the part of a public that saw an, a 30-second video and was animated into, or I guess kind of thrown into like a, a bit of a panic. And I think it's fair to describe it as a moral panic where they decided that, oh, we, we now know everything we need to know about this. Let's destroy this person. <laughs> Let's let's take away their li- livelihood. Let's find and identify them um, right. and make certain that they have no place in, po- in polite society. And that's how we will fight. We will fight racism. And in Amy Cooper's case, it was actually a little more um, daunting than that, because for more than a year, she had to fight or almost a year. Anyway, she had to fight a, a criminal prosecution for um, making false reports or false statements to law enforcement. And this woman went from, you know, blissful anonymity um, to being one of the most notorious and hated people in America and having, you know, public officials tell her that she could do a year on Rikers Island for calling the police because, and this is based on my reporting now, because she'd been threatened multiple times by a stranger in the park who, after she said, please leave me alone, stop, leave my dog alone, would not stop. He kept doing it. And I'd say that's almost textbook harassment. And who, um, it turns out, had a history of going to the park, stalking people and harassing them in precisely the same way. 
And what I discovered in the course of my reporting wasn't just that we're, we're incurious about these things and we're not paying attention, but that because of the weird incentives that are created by kind of the, the racial reckoning and a lot of the, the prevailing cultural winds in journalism, people were actively avoiding or ignoring or burying and obscuring complicating facts. There were journalists who knew that Christian Cooper had been in two physical altercations, at least two physical altercations since the beginning of 2020. From the beginning of 2020 to May of 2020, he'd gotten into two physical altercations with other people who had dogs in Central Park off-leash because he knew better than they did what the rules were, and he was going to ensure that they followed them. And I think that once you know that, it, it makes you wonder a bit about what happened before Christian Cooper started recording Amy Cooper. What would make a woman so afraid that she says to law enforcement, not just an African-American man, but an African-American man is threatening my life? It's the latter half of that that statement that is actually most interesting to me. Does she actually believe that? Um, and I spent some time just trying to unpack what happened in that event um, and investigating it and exposing people to the broader story in the hopes that I could help um, inspire people to think a bit more critically about the media that we're consuming and to think a bit more critically about um, the way we engage on social media to imagine that, you know, when I hit retweet and when I hit like, I'm essentially lining up to be part of this virtual firing squad. And I should maybe think a little bit more carefully about whether or not I'm actually prepared to to pass judgment, to render judgment on this person. Um, so, you know, I, I think the media has done a very bad job, but I also think that part of what needs to happen is people need to adjust their expectations for what the media ought to do and should respond accordingly. And I, I think once public perceptions around these issues change um, and we develop different attitudes, um, we can have a real influence on the way people cover these stories, um, the hysterical, rather sort of disingenuous in some cases, but motivated way that these stories end up getting covered. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I remember the timing. It was almost like it was almost like the the Me Too train and the BLM train just headed directly into each other in one one. <laughs> it seemed like almost. Mm-hmm. It's so um, nuts. Yeah. Like a single uh, woman alone in a park, like a, a man confronts her and starts starts right. harassing her. Like I, I can only call it that. Um, like that matters. And, and when right. I say that, that's not me taking Amy's side. Like we have a transcript of what was said that day that Amy broadly agrees with. But that transcript was provided by Christian Cooper in the moments or the days anyway, in the same day, actually, that all of this happened. He provides a detailed transcript of what he says, according to him, by his own account. And this should make him look good. He threatened her. He told her that if you don't if you're going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you're not going to like it. And that was kind of reported initially. But it was often reported with with euphemism. I believe uh, Gail right. King referred to it as an old birder trick. I have not found any evidence that anyone other than Christian Cooper <laughs> makes that particular threat. Oh, and, yeah. And goes to the store and purchases dog treats for the purposes of of luring strangers dogs away from them against their wishes. <laughs> yeah, that, those old birder tricks. Um, yeah. I mean, it's probably one of these things. I mean, what what I find so odd about all of this, and this is just the the real world colliding with the internet, right? Is that like you have 
you know, it's fucking New York, man. Like shit happens, right? Like you yell at somebody on the street, there's a discourtesy, whatever. You kind of move on. I mean, I, if, if you were, if all of us were to think back on the various episodes we had, I mean, this probably rates a little bit on the high end of that scale. But the sort of random, stupid, surly bullshit that you have to deal with living in a you know congested, unhappy city. Oh like God, yeah. if, if literally everyone were judged by, I mean, even even a fair, even a fair <laughs> representation of what that was, much less sort of a biased one, which is what you're hinting at, right? I mean, all of us would hang, right? All of us. Oh yeah. Right? It, oh, for sure. I I don't even want to. I don't even want to try and recount like one of the stupid altercations I had in public with a stranger in New York City. I'm I'm embarrassed even thinking about it. And I've definitely had a few over the decade that I spent between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Right. I mean, we all have. I, I think back, man. Some of the stuff I used to do <laughs> when we go out drinking, <laughs> drunk, whatever. It's like, I mean, nothing really like seriously bad, but stuff that, yeah, it just was not. I was certainly wouldn't be proud, and I'm glad that like. Nothing happened. We all moved on. Great. Let's just pretend this didn't happen because it's embarrassing. And uh, and uh, somehow, again, you just right. somebody. T- and then th- so let's move on maybe to the second story because we're getting a little short on time there. It's maybe not quite as famous, but I think it's a little bit different in that they're the I, I don't know what you, w- you want to call him, the plaintiff or whatever. The, the guy who sort of posted it was a, a blue check, I, I guess a fairly <laughs> well known author. And, you know, he was really driving it in a way that I think maybe wasn't quite the case in the case of the. Uh, the uh, Central Park situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the Central Park situation, the video goes online and it ends up getting shared by a high profile blue check. I think Soledad Ryan might have been among the first like really high profile people to share it because she's friends with Christian's sister, Melody, if I'm not mistaken. Some of that is is speculation because those people won't talk to me. Um, but in Fred's case, I have a much clearer picture of what happened. Um, Fred is a, 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 a very online um, activist, uh, a, a, someone who's very attuned to the social justice kind of woke side of things, um, and who has well over 100,000 Twitter followers. And he has precisely the kind of embarrassing altercation in a park uh, in Brooklyn uh, with a, a fellow New Yorker that we just described where no one covers themselves in glory and makes a video that doesn't even capture the offending incident. and he posts this video to the internet. And I have to imagine that the young woman who I'll only use their first name, Emma, who had this interaction with him, imagine she would just go home and everything would be fine. Um, in fact, I've had some, I've had some feedback from, and now I'm d- right. divulging things that I, I haven't even reported um, out yet, but I've, I've talked to some um, of my sources who suggest who live in the area that, you know, that evening um, she'd actually told someone like explicitly, I mean, what is he going to do? Like post it online for his hundred followers, um, and and he he does post it online. Aha, not quite more like hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah, but. you want to multiply that by by something. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it didn't turn out very well for her. I mean, in very short order, Fred like first directs his followers to identify the woman. Um, then he directs and encourages them to figure out who her employer is, where she works. They start to surface details about her personal life. At some point, I saw people um, posting uh, someone who she'd been engaged to at one point in the restaurant that this man owned, um, and they wanted to go after and dismantle all of these people's lives. Um, And Fred directly um, targets her employer and insists that the employer take some action. They, They kept using the word accountability. Uh, And the story ends with a woman getting fired. Um, Some not quite 12 hours after having this embarrassing encounter in the park uh, by her, by her employer. And 
again, it's just another circumstance where where people are prepared to be judge, jury, and executioner, and to carry out you know the investigation and the the, the sentence and punishment on the internet instantaneously uh, on the basis of barely any evidence. Um, the the difference here is that very quickly this story started to fall apart in some respects, and even more so that there were a number of people that were weirded out by just how vehement um, and determined this campaign to hurt this woman was. Um, And you had prominent people who one would imagine would have generally been on the side of someone who's doing something, you know, for social justice against, you know, white supremacy. Nicole 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 Hannah-Jones, the the, the founder of and the, the driving force behind the 1619 Project, comes out and says, I don't think this is a responsible use of, you know, the, the platform that this, that this guy has. Um, and, you know, he's been, he's been defiant. And even as I managed to surface some details that complicated the narrative there, even managed to, to surface some specific stuff about local uh, media organizations who just obscured inconvenient facts about what took place that day. Um, he's continued to be pretty defiant. Um, but, you know, ultimately, this young lady still lost her job, um, is still, it seems, kind of in hiding. I've been unable to get in touch with her. Um, I, I do hope at some point to be able to talk to her. But it's, you know, my purpose here is the same. Like, I think it is important to expose people to the reality and consequence of participating in these these Twitter mobbings. I, I don't, and I don't think lynching is too strong a word here. Um, I know that it has some racial connotations, but my melanin force field means I get to use words like that. In, in the appropriate way, <laughs> and you can't come after me. I hope it extends as far as me. Listen, I will, okay. I, here's what I can promise you. I can't promise you that no one will come after you. I promise you that I'll defend you. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you, Camille. So, yeah, so, I mean, right. I mean, I don't know the guy. I didn't know that guy at all before it happened. But it, yeah, I, no I, great did, loss. I did subtweet him, though, I have to say, and I think it was pretty obvious at the time. But I think it's, like, what you just described, the level of persecution that this dude unleashed on what was, again, like, I have some nasty, whatever, some guy flips me off. Like maybe I get pissed in that moment, but the thought that I'm going to like launch a marketing campaign to ruin this person's life. I think it takes, it takes a certain, in my opinion, morally depraved personality, right. To do this or a certain class of per like Absolutely. the thought of yeah. persecuting somebody while feeling morally right is just the biggest moral treat. I mean, th- this is obviously in some sense enabled every totalitarian movement in history, right? You know, and this, it's a personality type, right? This is the sort of person Mm -hmm. who, you know, I said in the tweet, it's it's a little hyperbolic, but we're being hyperbolic here, right? It's like, this is the class of person who like rats out the Jew to the Nazis, right? For their little, for their extra kilo of coffee or whatever. This is the person (laughs) like Cuba, for example, who rats out their neighbors to be like on the good side of the local, you know, political commissar or whatever. It really is this personality type who feels this, this Mm -hmm. moral rush, for literally bringing somebody down. It is absolute, it is absolutely the sort of scapegoat mob violence that, you know, Rene Girard writes that Christianity kind of solves with the Christ figure. I mean, it it really is that level of like primal, you know, in my opinion, depraved behavior. And it's, and it's what's incredible about it is that they, you know, the guy obviously has no compunction about it. I mean, he he tweets about it as if he's in the right, right? Like he's like, yeah. And it's like, how can you post? I mean, speaking mm-hmm. of lynching, it's like the old lynching photos. Yeah. Where people would actually share these photos as if it's like a normal. And it's like, are, are you are like, are you insane? <laughs> like, how could you possibly have a photo yeah, of this? Absolutely. And, 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 and again, this is this is obviously Twitter. This is not anything like lynching, but yeah, yeah. It's 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 the same vibe, right? In the sense of like, oh yeah, I'm showing off. How I'm gonna like 
grind this person to the ground with my hundred thousand follower account. I, I don't know. I to me it seems completely insane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, but but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go further than you. It's it's not a, a physical lynching, but the consequences can be just as profound for someone. You could you can literally die behind this. Um, Amy Cooper was was severely depressed. Um, was admittedly like by her own admission, like suicidal. And while she was suicidal, she was not only being persecuted online by strangers and being sent all of this horrible, hateful stuff, um, but was being actively persecuted. What I and, and what I would say is just a political, a politically motivated prosecution that the the city of New York knew it could not possibly win. They knew that they were persecuting a, a, a sick woman who was in a very vulnerable state, and she's lucky to have survived that circumstance. Right. Um, but but you used the word um, fundamentalism a moment ago, and there really is a very real sense in in which, and maybe we're coming full circle here in a little uh, in a way. Um, like my opposition to kind of the the excesses of wokeness um, or you know critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, is fundamentally about like my opposition to like reactionary fundamentalism. Um, that 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 instinct, that totalitarian instinct to punish people. Um, systematically for being, you know, off off the reservation and not um, um, completely complying with everything that you say, using fear to kind of motivate people into action. Um, and, and yes, trying to seize in some respects the levers of power to use them towards that end. Um, I'm concerned about those same dynamics on the right. And I'm concerned about the degree to which, you know, our commitment to what David French refers to as negative partisanship, um, to, to being, say, anti-woke, um, as opposed to being someone who's like driven by principle, um, who's not merely into the sort of destruction of the other party, like there is there is a sense in which that opens you up to a dangerous kind of reactionary politics that isn't moored by your principled support for particular things or your principled commitment to particular values. It's motivated by what you hate, in which case you'll have conservatives who suddenly decide, uh, well, we're going to use the government to break up those companies over there to take that to take that private property over there and to stop you from talking about all of these things that we say are off limits. Um, I don't know what's conservative about that, quite frankly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Nobody votes for anybody anymore. You vote against people, right? I mean, no, nobody actually has like a positive vision of the world. Everyone's an anti-something. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what it is. Um, you're either anti-woke or anti-racist. Um, yeah, but I think most most Americans are in favor of, of certain things. Like we have a tremendous amount in, in common. Like we do have way more in common than we have apart. We do have a lot of the same aspirations and goals to have healthy communities, to have our kids go to good schools, to have them reach their full potential. I mean, I, I believe that there are more productive ways for us to conduct our conversations, to engage in politics and to, to quite frankly, to kind of put our, our values into practice, but also to, to hold people accountable related to those affirmative values. You know, are you a person who is like a fundamentalist or who's, who's actually interested in serious constructive dialogue, who's, who's engaged in the project of creating a better society and who believes in like human thriving? If you are, we can find a way to do business together. Um, and if you're not, then we're going to pass on you and here are the specific reasons. It's not a categorical denunciation, but these are the, these are the reasons why we're going to bypass your, your version of, you know, progressive or, or conservative politics. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I agree. I, and obviously, I mean, yes, if you look at poll data around things like Medicare, 
gun law reform, you know, all the good stuff, right? You, you, you find a lot more political comedy than, than you would sort of think from the political culture. But that doesn't, I mean, the, the fact that it doesn't get expressed, right? The fact that, in fact, most Americans would be for some form of, of increased gun law reform. That's a whole separate, you know, rabbit hole I don't want to go down. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't get passed, or the, the, you know, or Medicare for All actually has a lot of support on both sides of the aisle. And again, we're not taking any steps towards it, really, since the Obamacare. Like, if you look at all these things, you know, the gap between what, like, the pure poll says and what actually is happening, in my opinion, is, like, the error function of democracy. It's like, I don't understand. Assuming these polls aren't just, you know, mm-hmm. revealed versus real preferences, which maybe they are, but assuming they're real, then, like, why, wh- why do we have that yeah. delta? There's clearly something wrong. Um, and it seems like that delta is actually increasing rather than decreasing o- over time. Um, so, okay, I mean... So we're coming yeah. up on on almost an hour, Camille. I I hesitate to get on the libertarian topic because I know I, I suspect you know h- half an hour will go by after your brilliant defense of libertarianism, and, and here and here and and here will be and the libertarian <laughs> party still can't get above the five percent federal threshold or whatever whatever the high point of Gary Johnson was back in the day. Um, the, the 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 phrase is naive libertarianism naive <laughs> I mean, maybe. by the way i still believe it or not i still have a feel the johnson uh t-shirt from back in the from back in the, the <laughs> 2015 i thought it was such a cute it was such a cute thing i had to i had to own it in fact i think there's a photo of me with my kid in my lap watching one of the first debates with the feel the Don- johnson shirt on which I- that is an overshare <laughs> <laughs> um Cool. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the thing, right? Libertarianism, it just, it, I mean, even if you didn't have the naked guy go up on the, on the podium in the political conference, I just think that it's just the case that it just doesn't have a, a, a wide set of support. No, it, yeah. it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't. Yeah. And I mean, look, though, I, I do think that libertarianism, however, like arrived at some conclusions and has some convictions that have become popular. Um, the drug drug reforms and drug decriminalization, something that libertarians have, have broadly championed right. and called attention to um, criminal justice reform to the extent it's been like meaningfully achieved and at least raising concerns about that, something libertarians have called a lot of attention to. And I'd say even like foreign, po- on far- foreign policy and foreign policy inter- interventionism, it's 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 valuable to have a contingent of people who consistently and articulately defend classical liberal values. And I say that primarily because I, I believe in them so right. deeply, but also because I just think it's been, it's been obviously beneficial to, to America broadly. Um, and, you know, hope, hopefully we're able to continue that trend of being ahead of the curb, curve and, and telling all of you people um, that you should do what we say and eventually you come around to it and pretend that it was your idea all along. I'm, I'm fine with that, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's definitely been the case that the biggest public policy changes in my lifetime around uh, marijuana legalization and gay marriage, which were definitely libertarian sure. in the past. And, and again, it's, it oh, seems sure. like a, a fait accompli now, but you know, you go back not even very far and you can see the speeches of, of card carrying democratic politicians. that, in fact, saying things that would now be cancel worthy. Mm-hmm. However, I, I am going to make a radical statement there, which, you know, cause I've been publishing a lot about religion in the past, which apparently is going well. I thought I would have like a massive subscriber, like that, you know, walkout, but I, I did not. And in fact, <laughs> on the contrary, I got a lot of positive reviews for it, but um, you know, what, it's funny, you know, a lot of libertarianism kind of reminds me, again, almost of um, kind of like biblical Judaism, right? Like you, you believe in this relatively short sort of set of, you know, of a covenant in some sense between the state and the citizen. The state doesn't do much, right? It, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it basically protects uh, life, uh, liberty and property. It enforces contracts and it defends the country. And, you know, Milton Friedman's famous quote, and that's the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's certain... 
again, almost commandment-like rights, like the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, and all the rest of it. The, the problem is, right, the, the reality is that people actually don't want freedom of speech. And I've got a post coming out on the, on the Facebook whistleblower mm-hmm. person tomorrow, right? No, because, you know, you obviously have this whole machinery, and it's complicated, and I don't want to open this can of worms, but basically <laughs> there's a whole machinery that wants Facebook to basically... I mean, you can call it content moderation. Basically, it's censoring speech, right? And I think it's very difficult to accept the level of free speech that we have in this country or used to have maybe and not actually believe in those rights. Again, wrapped up in some almost biblical civic religion that we used to have in this country and we kind of don't anymore. But um, but I don't know, maybe maybe that's fake, right? Because if you think about it, if, you know, Lenny Bruce, I, I watched the, the Chappelle thing uh, last night i was just thinking lenny bruce got you know because you know Chappelle, as i think is being reported you know obviously drops a lot mm-hmm. of words that are uh, a little problematic these days and uh, lenny bruce did the same and you know he was arrested on stage by new york city cops and like escorted from the comedy club of course that doesn't happen anymore the, the government doesn't come and enforce speech anymore it's actually corporations and, and movie studios and facebook that does right and so i think there's this weird collision where we don't have the civic national we, we don't we got to this like apex of freedom mm-hmm. of speech like in the 70s 80s and 90s where literally you could say anything that didn't lead to some to violence happening which is probably the freest speech that like western society has ever had and you have but that's kind of being abandoned as like a faith and then two you have corporations basically filling the gap of governments and actually, you know, enforcing whatever it might be, a vaccine mandate, freedom of speech, whatever it is, our norms about social behavior are now being enforced by, you know, an employer or Facebook rather than the Supreme Court. And so, so somehow in that mess, I think it's, I think you lose what you want, which again is this reverence for the law and a very light state that enforces the sort of, ba- you know, the basic baseline premises of like representational democracy and like does nothing beyond that, which sounds, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. Um, broadly, I think you're right that most people are in many respects under skeptical of, of free speech. Um, and that broadly speaking, especially amongst elites, there's a, a an intense desire to control speech um, and that the you know the trend away from having the state kind of being the primary policing organ um, to having you know proxies do things in some cases um, at the behest of the state because they're afraid um, that they'll be punished otherwise or that they may lose control. Um, th- these are all realities. And at the end of the day, I do hope that there are ways for us to impact and affect the culture, which is kind of my other kind of broader concern about trying to use legislation to to kind of protect people or to combat like what I think are kind of dangerous totalitarian in some respects ideologies. Like at the end of the day, a culture war probably ought to include some sort of cultural combat. (laughs) And by cultural combat, it's making the argument it's creating, it's telling great stories um, that, that that are inculcated with your values, or at least by people who have, you know, a diverse set of values. And it's challenging the, the rather like, Pirate and hollow notion of diversity that has become kind of inviolable in most people's minds that diversity is just that, you know, people look different than one another, um, as opposed to people have meaningful differences of perspective um, that they can disagree and that that disagreement isn't, you know, tantamount to them being, you know, evil and blasphemous and worthy of destruction. Um, So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, we have to cultivate the kind of civility that we want, but we also have to have a, a real sensibility about the kind of world that we want to live in. And the reality is the reason I can't vacate these principles, my kind of classical liberal ideals, is because I don't even want to live in a world where, you know, free speech as a kind of cultural value isn't the thing and equality under the law isn't the thing. I don't right. want to live in that place. So if I, I'm not going to compromise to try and build, you know, say... A, a more tolerable version of Singapore in order to protect myself from, you know, the woke apocalypse that some people imagine is going to come for us. Um, I, I will die on this hill. Like these are my principles and my values. And that's the world that I want my daughter to inherit um, and my son when he's finally born. So, yeah. Oh, is there a sound though? Congrats on I that. I don't even think I'm supposed to talk about that yet. My wife is going to punch me, but. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh. Well, whatever. It's okay, let's there. just. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. Okay, <laughs> Edit just... it out of the transcript. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's hope we're, nobody's dying on hills. Um, but um, but yeah. it's very brave of you to say that. I don't want anyone to, but I'm willing to. That's okay. I think I would just probably <laughs> flee to Spain or Israel. But in any case, it's very brave. I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> so speaking of telling great stories, um, maybe this is a time to plug uh, your podcast, Camille. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm uh, one third of the Fifth Column podcast, uh, one of the greatest podcasts in the world. I'll be a little humble. Um, and uh, we try, I think, to teach media literacy there, um, but in a way that isn't terribly pretentious um, and doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, we've got you know, myself, uh, Michael Moynihan, who's at Vice News, um, and Matt Welch, who's at Reason Magazine. Um, and we talk about the sort of dominant news stories of the day and narratives of the media narratives of the day. We flush out our disagreements um, and we try to offer some earnest, um, fair perspective on kind of the stories that are being told, how they're being told, why they're being told that way um, and invite people to to kind of join in to this project of being thoughtfully skeptical of regarding skepticism as a as a virtue um and not you know just indulging in cynicism and you know cheap cheap partisan mockery um of the other team because they're bad yeah no and i have to say you just have the most illustrious uh <laughs> set of guests on that show yes. including of course myself who was on it's the show true. a couple weeks ago it's true. we have great guests. Um, so i I just love my backhanded self compliments are just my specialty. Um, so while we're at, while we're in the plugging sort of roll credit stage, I will plug since this is the pull request show that's tied to my Substack. Plug a couple of things myself. Uh, one is there's a piece dropping for paid subs tomorrow on the whole uh, Facebook whistleblower thing. I finally got so much peer pressure to write something about it, even though, frankly, being dragged into the FB mud is not something I want to do again. But I, I decided to go ahead and write something. Um, and I'm also, uh, might as well go ahead and announce it. I'm going to do a sort of solo show on, on Colin, on, on this, on the pull request about that piece. And anyone who wants to call in and ask me questions in real time, I usually don't take questions because it's usually just me in conversation with the guest. But I think I'm going to start doing a pull request weekly, just me hanging and talking to readers and maybe even giving a mini speech at the beginning, you know, assuming people actually show up. So that'll happen probably tomorrow. Actually, you know what? I'm doing it with, uh, we already set it up. I'm doing it with David Sachs tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific. But due to the miracle of Colin, you'll be able to listen to it asynchronously later. Um, so there we go. Um, as, as you can tell, I'm going to be probably doing 
doing the call-in thing a little bit more regularly. I mean, Camille was my weekly guest this week. There'll be another guest probably every week, uh, you know, going forward. Um, so anyhow, uh, look look for more in this place. And Camille, thanks for joining us. It's always fun um, rapping with you. And, you know, at some point we need to meet in person. You, you're in Tiburon and I'm on the West Coast and we've never like hung and gone for a beer or anything. Let's let's do it. I'm I'm not afraid of COVID. I'm I'm not afraid of COVID either. Although it reminds me, I need to go take my booster thing. But um, <laughs> yes, cool. Well, I'll close the room. Thank you again, Camille, and thanks everyone uh, for showing up. And uh, you know, I might this one. You know, this went so well. I might just export the audio and pub it as a podcast on pull request. Actually, for those who don't happen to be on call in yet, so um, look for that. And thanks again, Camille. Over thanks and out. Take it easy. See ya. Bye. Bye.